You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Richard Elwood. Earth, the Marauder, by Arthur J. Burks. Chapter 22. The Struggle for Mastery. The people of all the Gens of Earth were now between two fires. The cube army, ruled by the Mistress of the Moon, was laying waste the dwellings of the Gens, destroying them with a speed and surety of which no earthquake, whatever its proportions, would have been capable. The Gens were forced out upon the roof of the world, where scarcely had they maneuvered into their prearranged formations than the Martians struck. Those huge balls of fire, larger even than the air cars of the moon, landed in vast and awe-inspiring numbers on the roof of the world, landed easily, with no apparent effort or shock. The light of them made all the world a place of vast radiance, save only that portion which was being destroyed by the cube army, and this area had a cold, chill radiance of its own. By groups and organizations the fireballs of Mars landed and rested quiescent on the surface of the globe. Sarka, pausing only long enough in his laboratory to study this strange attack and to discover how it would get under way, was at the same time preparing to go forth to take his own strange part in the defensive action of the Earthlings. A vast confidence was in him. "'We will lose millions of people, father,' he said softly. But it will end in our victory, in the most glorious war ever fought on this earth. That is true, my son, replied the older man sadly. For several minutes the vast fireballs, which seemed to be monster glowing octagons, rested where they had landed, and even the gens of the people were closing on them, bringing their ray detectors and atom disintegrators into action. Then, when the earthlings would have destroyed the first vast fireballs, and Sarka was noting that the flames which bathed the balls seemed to have no effect whatever on earthlings, save to outline them in mantles of fire, the fireballs wakened to new life. They opened like the halves of peaches falling apart, and out upon the roof of the world poured the first Martians Earth had ever seen. They were more than twice the size on average of Earth people at first glance seemed to resemble them very much save that their eyes which each martian was possessed of two were set on the ends of long tentacles which could stretch forth to a length of two feet or more from the eye sockets and thus be turned in any direction each eye was independent of its neighbor as one could look forward while the other looked backward or one look right while the other looked left each Martian possessed two arms on each side of a huge, powerful torso, and legs that were like the boils of trees, compared to the slender limbs of earthlings. All the Martians seemed to be dressed in the skins of strange, vari-colored beasts. Each carried in his upper right hand a slender, cane-like thing that some three feet in length from whose tip there flashed those spurts of flame which had puzzled the earth people before the actual launching of the attack. Beyond these weapons, the Martians seemed to possess no weapons of offense at all, nor of defense. "'With our ray detectors and atom disintegrators,' said Sarka, moving into the exit dome with Jaska, "'we can blast them from the face of the earth.' But 
In a moment he realized he had spoken too hastily. The nearest fireball was, of course, within the area of the Gens of Cleric, and Sarka could see with his naked eyes all that transpired. The Martian passengers, who moved swiftly away from their fireball vehicles, then a flight of the Gens of Cleric descended upon the fireball and its fleeing passengers, with tiny ray detectors and atom disintegrators held to the fore, ready for action. The Martians, at some distance from their glowing vehicle, paused and formed a ragged line, facing the ball, staring at the descending people of the Gens of Cleric, their tentacle-like eyes waving to and fro, oddly like the tentacles of those air cars of the moon. The flight was hovering above the first fireball. In a second row, at the command of an underling, the ray detectors would destroy fireball and Martians as thoroughly as though they had never existed at all. But. Then a strange thing happened. At that exact moment, timing their actions to fractions of seconds, the Martians raised and pointed their cane-like weapons of the spurting flames. They pointed them, however, not at the earthlings, but at the fireball which had brought them to earth. Instantly the fireball exploded, as with the roaring of a hundred mighty volcanoes, and the descending flights of the Gens of Cleric was blasted into countless fragments. Bits of them flew in all directions. Many dropped the mangled, infinitesimal remains of them down to the roof of the earth, while many were hurled skyward through formations above them, while those formations to a height of a full two miles were broken asunder. Many flights above that first flight were smashed and broken, their individual members hurled in all directions by that one single blast of a single fireball. Individuals who escaped destruction were hurled end over end, upward through other flights higher above, and the whole aggression of flights which had been concentrated on that first fireball was instantly demoralized, while full fifty percent of its individuals were instantly torn to bits. Sarka groaned in the depths of him. The leader of the Martians, or the master who sent them here, sent them here to win! for they do not win, they cannot return to Mars, as they will have destroyed their vehicles. Their confidence is superhuman. Have faith in the courage of Earthlings, son, said Sarka. It was much to ask, for if one single of these fireballs could wreck such havoc with the people of Earth, what would the destruction by the countless other unexploded fireballs of the Martians? Still, the spokesmen themselves must discover a way to hold their own, to win against the Martians. For Sarka, there was greater work to do. He must oppose the wills of Luar and of Dalius in a mighty mental conflict which would decide whether the homes of men would be saved or utterly destroyed by the moon cubes. But as he left through the exit dome, with Jaska by his side, he shuddered, and was just a little sick inside as he saw the fearful result of that first explosion of a Martian fireball. Bits of human wreckage were scattered over the earth for a great distance in all directions from where the fireball had exploded, and at that spot a gigantic crater had been torn in the roof of the world, going down to none knew what depths. Even the Martians here, only to consolidate positions which had passed the demolition of the moon cubes, were capable of demolitions almost as ghastly and complete as those of the cubes. 
The sound was incapable of being described, for outside the laboratory the sound of the advance of the moon cubes eating into the dwellings of men, tumbling them down, grinding them to powder, was cataclysmic in its mighty volume. A million express trains crashing head-on into walls of galvanized iron at top speed simultaneously. Eardrum crashing blows as fireballs exploded. The screams and shrieks of maimed and dying earthlings, of earthlings unwounded but possessed of abysmal fear. Then, resolutely, Sarka turned his back on the conflict between the Martians and the people of Earth, and hurtled across the devastated roof of the world toward that area which was feeling the destructive force of the Vandal Cube Army. As he flew, Jaska keeping pace with him in silence, his mind was busy. Passage through the white flames of the moon had given him the key. Those white flames, source of all life on the moon, rendered almost godlike those whom it bathed, gave them unbelievable access of mental brilliance, were the source of that blue column which had forced the earth outward toward Mars, were the source, in some way, of the cubes themselves, as he and Jaska, after passing through them, owed their own near divinity to the same white flames. Those flames had made Luar mistress of the moon, therefore of the gnomes and of the cubes. Therefore Sarka, having been bathed in the flames, should make himself master of the cubes, if he could outwill the combined determinations of Luar and of Dalius. His confidence was supreme as he fled through the outer darkness toward the eerie light which came from the area of demolitions. Looking ahead, he could see tiny glows in the sky, which he knew to be the rebels of Dalius's gens, flying to keep their rendezvous with him. Higher mounted his courage and his confidence as he approached the roaring crash, perpetual and always mounting, which showed him where the cube army was busiest. The sound vibrated the very air, causing the bodies of Sarka to tingle with it, causing them to flutter and shake in their flight with its awesome power. But they did not hold back, flew onward through the gloom, leaving behind them the brightly lighted areas where the gens of Earth battled with the fireballs of the Martians, moving into the area of the eerie glowing of the cubes. Just as he approached the spot where mighty dwellings were tumbling before the march of the cube army, he sent a single command toward the cube which had piloted him from the moon. Come to me on the edge of the crevice nearest the place of most destruction. Would the cube now be subservient to his will? He wondered. Everything depended upon that. If not, then he might as well try to stay the forces of a mighty avalanche with his breath as halt the cube army with his will. But, strangely enough, the closer he came to the vast area of tumbling dwellings, the calmer he became, the more sure that he would win against the cubes. For when he landed at the lip of the crevice, across which he could look for a hundred miles, a single cube gleamed brightly almost at his feet, awaiting his orders. One by one, by twos, threes, fours, dozens, came the glowing people who had been bathed in the white flames of the moon's life source, and each dropped down beside him. Sarka gave a command. Drop down in the midst of the cubes. 
Make your own cube the rallying point for this vast army of cubes. Force the cubes to desist in their mighty destruction. Be subservient to your will, and do you, each of you, be subservient to my will. Away dropped the rebels, glowing points of white flame, dropping down the sides of the crevice, a mighty, awesome canyon, into the very heart of the activity of the cubes, and from the brain of Circa, aided by the will of Jaska, went forth a simple command. Cease your march of destruction, O moon cubes, and hearken to the will of Sarka, your master. Draw back from your labors and muster, not as squares, rectangles, and columns, but as individual cubes, in the area already devastated by you. Rally about the glowing people who have passed through the flames which were your moon mother, and wait for orders. Take no further heed of commands from Dalius and Luar. Instantly it seemed to Sarka that he had drawn into some invisible vortex which tore at his brain, and his body, and his soul. Inside a cold voice seemed to say, Fool, Sarka, my will is greater than yours. But though the force of the will of Luar, whose thought he recognized, tore at him, almost shriveled the soul and brain of him with its might, he continued to send his thought command out to the moon cubes, forcing it through the wall of Luar's will, hurtling like invisible projectiles at the cube army below. Exaltation possessed him, buoyed him up gave him greater courage and confidence as the moments passed, for even as his being concentrated on the will command to the cubes, his senses told him that the mighty sound of destruction was dying away, fading out. Slower now the dwellings fell, slower moved the moon cubes, and as they slowed in their mighty march through the dwellings of men, so increased the confidence, the power of will, of Sarka and his people, the rebels of the Gens of Dalius. Then, after an hour whose mighty mental conflict had bathed Sarka in the perspiration of superhuman effort, the sound of destruction ceased altogether, and the dwelling ceased to fall. A silent shout, like an inborn paean of rejoicing, surged through Sarka as he noted the retreat from the dwellings of men, of the moon cubes, Back and back retreated the squares and the rectangles, the columns and the globes, breaking apart as they retreated. Within fifteen minutes after the destructions had ceased, millions of gleaming cubes winked upward from the bottom of the crevice, motionless, quiescent. Sarka sent forth another thought. I am your master, O cubes of the moon. No sound. No movement answered him. Luar and Dalius are no longer able to command you. Still no sound or movement of the cubes. Then, taking a deep breath, as of a swimmer preparing to dive into icy water, Sarka gave a new command. Dissolve! Reform on the roof of the world in globes! Roll over the face of the earth! Destroy the fireballs of Mars and take prisoners, 
inside the globes. The attackers from Mars! Instantly the gleaming cubes vanished, and darkness as of a mighty pit possessed the crevice of destruction. Then, at the lip of the great crevice, the cubes swept into form, myriads of globes which gleamed with the cold blue brilliance of the moon. They had no sooner formed as globes than they were in action again, rolling over the roof of the world as with a rising crescendo of thunder tumbling down the night-black sky. So mighty was their rush that the roof of the world trembled and shook. Above their charge raced Sarka and Jaska, and with them the rebels of the Gens of Dalius. All were present when the cubes crashed into the fireballs from Mars, swept the Martians within themselves as prisoners, held them securely, and continued on, destroying the fireballs in myriads. Here and there fireballs exploded on contact, destroying the globes, which immediately reformed again as though the explosions had not been felt at all. Sarka had won the allegiance of the moon cubes, which had defeated and taken prisoners the Martians, destroying the vehicles in which they might have returned to Mars. And as realization came, darkness settled over the roof of the world, the last flare of Mars faded and died. This done, the cubes formed in mighty rows, facing the laboratory of Sarka, his heart beating madly with exultation, Sarkis studied them. Then he stepped into the observatory, gazed away across the space which separated the earth from the moon, sent a menial message winging outward. Luar! Dalius! Faintly, fearfully, came the answer. We hear, O Sarka. Shift the blue column away from the earth. Do not interfere as we return to our orbit about the sun. Obey, or I combine the total wreckage of Mars, the earth, and the moon in an attack against you and your Martian ally. Inform your ally that their people will not return, that the earth has need of them, but that two gens of earth will be received by Martians in perfect amity and these Gens allowed biding places on Mars. Unless your ally obeys, the Martian in my hands will be destroyed. In an hour the answer came, the snarling thought answer of Dalius. We hear, we obey, but Dalius is never beaten while he lives. His day will come! Sarka found himself feeling even a little sorry for the sorely beaten Dalius, but his face was grim as he sent another command to the people of Dalius who had passed through the life source of the moon. Take command of the cubes and force them to repair the damage which has been done to the dwellings of men, to repair them completely over all the face of the earth. As the glowing people hurried to obey, Sarka softly asked his father, But what shall we do with the Martians? Sarka the second smiled. Release them, and send them to the lowest level, where, guarded by the cubes, they will be sent constructing fireballs like those in which they arrived for the use of Earth, if Dalius or the Martians ever attack again. And, son, yes, O oh my father, asked Sarka softly. 
I have another suggestion for the employment of the cubes. Let them build air cars to be used by the Gens of Prull and of Classer as transportation to Mars whenever you are ready for them to go. Sarka smiled boyishly, happily. Yes, so oh my father. And is there anything else? Yes. Take Jaska as your mate. Do you not see that she is waiting for you to speak? Sarka turned to Jaska, whose face was glorious in her surrender, and whose lips were parted in a loving smile, which faded only when Sarka's lips caressed it away. The End End of Section 25 Recording by Richard Elwood